Welcome to the Senior Center Story Hour, where we hear poems, stories, and observations of life written by the Franklin Senior Center Writers Group. I'm Peter Jay. Join us now as we share and enjoy musings and moments as told by the authors themselves. Our writers today. I'm Sue Wade. I'm Bill Wiley. I'm Kathy Salzberg. I'm Alice Judge. I'm Joe Ewald. Hi, I'm Faith Flaherty. Thank you all once again for bringing your stories. Let's jump in, Sue. What's going on this month? We got any surprises? We got anybody doing anything unusual? Oh, I see heads going up and down. All right. We're planning a future tea party with, Uh with making a book of some of our writings. Nice. So that should be coming up. More information on that late to come. You heard it here, bulletin, bulletin, bulletin. Stay tuned. Flash, book coming up real soon. <laughs> As It's a collection of our stories, so it, it's kind of nice. Great. Let's just jump right in. Who shall we go with? For... Um, Faith? Faith will be our first reader. All right, Faith, it's all yours. The Monsters Under My Bed. Mommy doesn't believe me, but they snuck in while I was sleeping. I was playing and a troll rolled under the bed when I lifted the blanket and kicked my slippers there. I think I saw a glimpse of the big bad wolf smiling at me, and the wicked witch from Oz winked at me too. Then when I slept, a parade of monsters marched under the bed. The giant from the beanstalk led the band. Rumpelstiltskin was doing acrobats. Frankenstein played the drums. A mummy blew a horn, and the Grinch danced around the devil who stuck his tongue out at me. I don't know why they came. I don't know how they all fit. I don't know what to do about it. But I'm not going to make them mad at me. I'm going to be very good and make them all happy. It won't be easy. Frankenstein has a tattoo of a flower and stitches on his face. He grunts a lot, but everyone obeys him. Frankenstein and the giant play with my soccer ball. Sometimes it keeps me awake because the other monsters cheer so loud. The big bad wolf is always trying on my clothes. He especially likes my hats. I find wolf hair all over my hairbrush. The wicked witch has a high-pitched cackling laugh. It's kind of annoying, but I don't say anything. I don't want to hurt her feelings. The devil is always making her cry. One time, Frankenstein caught the devil hiding the witch's hat and wrestled with him to get it back. The devil got squished because the giant and the mummy and Frankenstein sat on him. They wouldn't let him up until he promised to give the witch back her hat. He did, but then he set it on fire. (laughs) No one trusted him after that. Rumpelstiltskin sometimes did my homework for me, and I let him. Even when he got a lot wrong, I never told on him. I kind of feel sorry for the mummy. He's such a klutz. I'd help him, but he smells so bad. The Grinch scowled at me one morning when I was singing, and he told me that I couldn't put joy on like it were clothes. But the Wicked Witch joined in my singing, and we outnumbered him. Mommy reads us a bedtime story. She doesn't see them at all, but they're sitting on my toy box, leaning against my dresser, stretched out on my rug, and even laying down on the bed. 
Even if she can't see them, I don't know how she doesn't hear them, especially the wicked witch's cackle. One time she got a whiff of the mummy's breath when he came up to look at the pictures in the book. Mommy thought I had just tooted, so she went and opened a window, and she left that window opened, and that's how they all got out while I was asleep. One by one, they flew out the window and lived happily ever after. <laughs> Very good. A child's imagination is fantastic. And it's also, it is a great reflection of kids' imagination. Yeah. I understand that children tend to be the most imaginative right around the age of five. Yeah, that was a great story. Absolutely loved it. Um, our next reader is Joe Ewald. Hi. The name of my story is called My Cousin Mitch. My first cousin just so happens to be Mitch Kupchak. I don't know if our listeners have ever heard of him, but let me see if I can tell you all about him. He is from a small town off the coast of Long Island called Brentwood. Starting from a very young age, he started to excel in basketball. By the time he reached high school, he was already being recruited from college scouts. I remember going to see Brentwood High play, and his team ended up winning by a landslide with Mitch scoring 52 points. Shortly after, he ended up going to the University of North Carolina, where he was coached by the legendary Dean Smith. From there, Mitch had a great collegiate career to the point where he was drafted by the NBA. Even though Mitch did not win a national championship for North Carolina, he was selected to play for the Olympics in 1974, where it was still played by amateurs. Mitch went on to receive a gold medal as the U.S. went on to win at Montreal. Then getting back to being drafted by the NBA, he went on to win a world championship with the Washington Bullets in his very first year. After playing three years for the Bullets, he became a free agent and ended up signing a great contract with the Los Angeles Lakers. 64 games into his first season with L.A., Mitch suffered, at the time, a career-ending injury to his right knee. But Mitch would not give up and throw in the towel. He missed the next two years while rehabilitating his knee. Mitch was able to come back as a part-time player, as many had thought his career was over with. Mitch went on to win two NBA championships with the Lakers. In college, Mitch got a business career from North Carolina. So after his playing career, he was an assistant general manager for the Lakers, who went on to win three more championships. When the general manager, Jerry West, retired, Mitch was chosen to replace him. As general manager, they went on to win three consecutive championships. Mitch eventually left the Lakers. Now he is currently the general manager for the Charlotte Hornets, owned by Michael Jordan. My whole bottom line from this story 
So you can come from a small town and still capture your dream. If you have desire, courage, and a big heart, you can accomplish anything like my cousin Mitch did. Yeah, Mitch. Yeah, 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 Nice. Wow. And, and we're all like middle class, nobody's rich. And to have a VIP like that, it's just sad. like, oh my God. When, when he was a player for the Lakers, he got uh, my brothers and myself in to see uh, Magic versus Berg. Ah. Back in uh, wow. uh, 86, we went to the first game where they had the Boston Massacre. I don't know if you remember yeah. that game yeah. where they beat him. <laughs> 148 to 114. Yeah. Wow. And I was at that game. But the Lakers went on to beat the Celtics uh -huh. in six games that year. Right. Yeah. So he, he got me uh got me in for for a few free games. Nice. Send him a copy of this radio show. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Seriously. Do that. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So I'm I'm very humbled by the fact that I have mm -hmm. somebody that went on to have a, a career like that. It all has to do with attitude right. yes. and yeah, determination. Right. Exactly. I know about determination. determination. Right. My, my sport is full contact tiddlywinks. <laughs> and the, you know, the, the, the training on that is pretty, pretty intense. You know, the, I, I used only, I used only sport, the green felt, nothing but the best. The <laughs> only the green felt. And you know, I, I could wink with the best of them right, in, right into the cup. I you know, that chili winks in a while in that's a long time. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I always go for the obscure. It's my thing. <laughs> to be good at something, you have to put in a lot of hard work, Pete. Well, yeah, yes. well, I figure if I pick something that's really obscure, I could be number one in a field of one. Because yeah. nobody else yeah. does it. That's it. There you go. It's all my strategy. I'm outstanding in my field because I'm all alone in my field. <laughs> Okay, our next reader is Alice Judge. Hi, I'm Alice Judge. This is a short story, and I'm not sure whether I'm through with it, whether it needs something else to continue. I think it stands alone, but maybe it could go on and I could write something further. The name of it is Murder is Untidy. Detective Jim Hollander surveyed the room where an older woman lay dead in front of him. Whoa, is this what they call hoarding? Can you believe this, Sergeant Sam O'Rourke? Notebook in hand came over to his superior. Looks like an accident. Her name is Susan Wright, 75 years old. Her daughter's over there. Hollander looked over to see a pretty woman in her 40s, wiping tears from her eyes while one of his guys was writing notes. Hollander leaned over the body. Was Wright ill? She looks very frail. O'Rourke studied his notes. The daughter said the mother had a bad cold. She comes over every evening just to make sure the mother eats dinner. That's how she found the body. It looks like the old lady tripped on the cord of the TV that was on top of the pile of newspapers, and the TV hit her on the head. That's a big cut, Hollander bent down closer. 
It's a nasty cut, but is it enough to kill her? O'Rourke sighed. Not everything is a homicide, Jim. This was an accident waiting to happen. Look at the height of those newspapers and magazines. Look over there, the army uniform. The daughter says her father passed six years ago, and the father was only in the army for a year. Hollander looked at the paths somebody, probably the daughter, had made so her mother could get to the kitchen, bathroom, bedroom, and sunroom. He shook his head and moved toward where the daughter sat. Tell the medical examiner I want an autopsy, just to make sure it was an accident, Hollander ordered his subordinate. As Hollander strode up to where his contemporary was talking to the victim's daughter, he became aware that some of the stacks on the floor were almost as tall as him. The officer faded into the background as Hollander introduced himself and extended his condolences to the victim's daughter. How long was your mother a hoarder, he asked. Margie Wright looked up at the detective, wiping away her tears. Don't be condescending, Sergeant. Detective Jim Hollander, and forgive me if I came off that way. I didn't mean anything by it, but it does look like your mother's hoarding caused her death. Was she always this way, collecting things like magazines and newspapers? Not always. When my father died, my mother retreated into her own world. Not that they got along that well. I heard them argue constantly. He verbally abused her badly. But somehow, when my father died, Mum blamed herself for his actions and thought if she had done things differently, my dad wouldn't have been the way he was. Margie Wright shook her head and started weeping softly. Hollander nodded to O'Rourke, standing nearby. Sergeant O'Rourke will drive you home if you don't feel you're able. The young woman said she had her own car and would be fine. He requested she leave her telephone number with him. We'll be in touch. The detective thought for a moment. Are you an only child? No, my brother is in Europe on business. I'll have to contact him when I get home. Give the sergeant his name and telephone number as well and where we can reach him. We will have to notify him officially. To Margie Wright's question about releasing the body, Hollander told her they would be doing an autopsy. The daughter looked alarmed. You said it was an accident. I often warned her about living this way. There could be a fire or something. The woman's words faded as she started crying again. It's not in routine, I'm sure, the detective attempted to assure her. As the daughter retreated, he moved over to his top man. Give me a background check on the daughter, son, and the victim. My arches are bothering me. Everyone on the detective's team knew about Hollander's feet, although embarrassed to tell anyone outside their department. He had an uncanny belief that held true in every one of his cases. When Hollander's archers hurt, it always turned out to be murder. Oh, yeah. And the truth was throbbing beneath him. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure whether I should pursue it or leave it as it is. I think it stands alone. Yeah, it does. It does. does. I do, too. You can can extend it. 
Yeah. Yeah, you can always do a part two. Yeah. yeah if you treat, if you. Well, there's a great old quote. Uh, I believe it may have gone all the way back to Da Vinci about an artist's work is never finished, only abandoned. And oh. they attributed that one to Hemingway in writing. Oh. A book oh. is never finished; it's only abandoned. This is true with <laughs> painting, also. Exactly. You, you can paint and paint and paint and paint. And paint and paint and paint. Oh, if I just changed it here or just changed it there, yes. Exactly. When I edit my stories or my novel. I'm like that, too. I could edit it for 10 years, 20 years. Oh, yeah. Well, I think that's an important part of the passion, to own and create a piece of work and then to revisit it, particularly as your style changes Mm -hmm. uh, and you see it in new eyes. When I write something, I never go out with the first draft. Never. No. You know, like, I'll I'll rewrite my stories in a a notebook and and I'll add words to it as I go. Exactly. Exactly. We we sculpt our scripts. We do. As far as the autopsy goes, I think it's mandatory unless medically advised not to. Oh, is that the way it is? I believe that. Yeah. Just to get dark for a moment, I expect that as in so many things in my life during my autopsy, they'll be laughing and pointing. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, Harry, come here, look at this. (laughs) Did you ever see such... (laughs) It's a good thing you won't be there. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. I'll be glad to sit that one out. (laughs) Okay, Um, Sue, who's up? Our next reader is Kathy Salzberg. Hey. This is Kathy, and here's my latest. It's called A Tiger by the Tail. My buddy and fellow groomer George was stymied. His retail sales were sluggish. The road in front of his shop had been dug up by construction crews for months, and potential customers had to dodge an obstacle course of orange barrels to get to his front door. His grooming staff was keeping busy, but shoppers were staying away in droves. He racked his brain to come up with a new promotion to spark public interest, trying his darndest to think outside the box. Having the flying Elvises, Elvi, land in his parking lot, perhaps? On second thought, they might crash land in the construction zone. Another visit from Chuckles the Clown? No, Chuckles probably wouldn't accept his invitation for a return engagement. The career clown wasn't getting any younger, and a lifetime of pratfalls had taken its toll. The poor bugger was due for hip replacement surgery. (laughs) Besides, the last time he had appeared at the shop, some out-of-control yuppie children had mocked him and ripped off his multicolored wig. What about a beauty contest? The idea pleased George. He closed his eyes, visualizing himself, placing a crown on a shapely blonde, Miss Kitty Litter of 2019. (laughs) The minute he floated the scheme by his wife, Betty, she shot it down in flames. Over my dead body, she hissed. While that concept gave him pause, he didn't want to get sidetracked from his promotional brainstorming He'd savor that one later, like a sweet piece of candy stashed away for his secret bedtime snack. The light bulb in George's head began to blink when he perused his local paper, the Goldenrod Gazette. His arch-rival, Frank of Frank's Family Pets, had a half-page spread this week promoting his hamster races. He was offering prizes, 
in inviting kids to participate in a coloring contest before the big event. The ad featured a picture of Frank himself dressed in a moth-eaten hamster costume. I always knew that guy was a rodent, George sputtered. <laughs> well, at least he's doing something constructive, Betty countered. Besides, some of the most successful individuals in this country are rodents. <laughs> yeah, right, he laughed thinking she was referring to any one of several squirrely politicians he could name. But as usual, Betty was in his face with a snappy answer. How about Mickey Mouse or Bugs Bunny? They could both buy and sell you, Mr. Big Shot. George groaned and longed for his single days when he ate SpaghettiOs out of a can and had time to follow his favorite sport, mud wrestling. He knew he couldn't follow in Frank's footsteps with hamster racing. For one thing, he didn't even sell small animals or their supplies. What his shop did have was a ready supply of dog and cat customers. Dog races, he mused. No, too much space would be needed, and the chance of an escapee would be too great. He could just see Louis the Lassa Apso perched in the business end of that steam shovel out front, ascending into the clouds. It was not an entirely unpleasant thought, but Louis's owner was a lawyer whose business card featured a drawing of a briefcase-toting man in a business suit, bumper-jumping an ambulance. No, <laughs> dogs were too fast and too risky. What about cats? He automatically glanced at his arms, crisscrossed with deep scars, which looked like the result of a botched suicide attempt, but were in fact mementos of a recent attempt to bathe the stressed-out Siamese. George sighed. Then he remembered his wife's precious pets, Hubert the Himalayan hairball and Priscilla the pompous Persian. My babies, Betty called them as she returned from work each evening, kissing them, stroking their fur, and cooing soft endearments, before she turned to snap at him. George, are you ever going to take out this garbage, or are you trying to grow your own breed of killer houseflies? George was the first to admit it. He was jealous of those cats. Secretly, he suspected they didn't have a whole brain between them, that all their <laughs> carefully selected genes had gone into coat volume. They routinely fell off the sofa, and half of their intended litter box deposits fell far short of their intended target. <laughs> but they always came when Betty called in that aggravatingly high-pitched baby voice she used, something like a cross between Betty Boop and olive oil. Yubi, Prissy, come to Mama. Time for your itty-bitty snack. <laughs> Persian cat races. It was perfect. He could see it now, his store overflowing with excited children and their compulsively competitive parents, urging Fluffy over the finish line. The same mums and dads who stoned that little league umpire a few weeks back when he made a bad call. Those people <laughs> came to play. He might even rent a cat costume from that place downtown. Wonder what old Frank would think about that. His mind churned wildly inventing promotional press releases, anticipating a crush of cat customers filling his front room, a juggernaut of goodwill and rich new relationships reverberating through the Goldenrod community. 
When race day arrived, 25 Persians and Himalayans arrived in their carriers as the shop swarmed with excited families. George had moved merchandise aside to lay out the lanes, and each cat sported a number worn proudly around its neck. Betty busied herself assembling the trophies and prizes, ranging from a plush new bed to bags of catnip goodies. How do I look? he had asked Betty that morning as he donned the fuzzy cat suit. After a long silence, she said, You don't want me to answer that. <laughs> no matter. He was filled with excitement as he held a status pistol, a squirt gun, aloft. The rules were quite simple. Cats were required to stay in their own lanes and to cross the finish line when their youthful owners awaited, using any ploy necessary to lure their kitties down the track. Fighting and hairball hurling were automatic disqualifications, as were spraying fellow participants. With the photographer from the Gazette and his flashbulbs at the ready and George's brother Ralph pressed into service to record the event with his video camera, George fired his pistol as the owners released the cats from their crates. He had always dreamed of saying it, let the games begin. George learned a lot about cats that day. Like Frenchmen, they refused to be governed, thriving on anarchy. <laughs> Despite the young owner's lures, a ball of yarn, a catnip mouse, a paper bag, few of the fluff balls even headed in the right direction. One teenager whipped out an extension cord and fired up an electric can opener. But her cat, a chubby fellow named Percy, leaped over the Dutch door and into the grooming room and closeted himself behind a crate. A young white Persian named Tiffany became distracted from her quest by a sudden need to perform personal hygiene mid-course, while a blue cream male stopped to rip the number from his neck and began eating it. Two Himalayans discovered each other and said to heck with the race, darting behind the dog food bags to work on their relationship. When one heavy-set cat owner tried to retrieve her panicked pet from the dog cookie display, the boxes toppled, causing general pandemonium and a large laceration to the poor woman's nose as Betty ran her own race for the first aid kit. Those cats that stayed the course seemed nervous, crouching and crawling, hair standing on end, eyes darting about. A blue smoke male almost made it to the finish line when nature called. Then Betty had to go and spook him with the paper towels. Ingenuity won the day as one pigtail girl grabbed a litter box from George's shelf and filled it with clean, clumping litter, causing Elroy, her flame point Himalayan, to streak down the track and leap into the porta potty. Do your thing, Elroy, shouted the girl's proud dad as the feline proceeded to do just that, sending Betty on a desperate search for the deodorizing spray. George awarded Elroy the litter box and its contents as the grand prize <laughs> instead of the plush Betty had planned upon. And once they were rounded up, the runners-up all got catnip treats and food samples. In retrospect, the race had provided its own brand of excitement, this was more fun than having a substitute teacher, one lad exclaimed, <laughs> while an elderly matron called for a committee to work on the rules. Betty's fingers danced over the cash register keys, ringing up sales of every toy and treat imaginable. 
but George decided not to make Persian cat races an annual event, noting to the Gazette reporter, any great undertaking is bound to have some bugs that need working out. Still, it was by no means a failure. Splitting the profits three ways, George, Ralph, and Betty are cleaning up marketing the video. Persian cat racing, an idea whose time has come. You may have caught them on cable TV. That's George in his cat suit giving the pitch. Call 1-800-MAYHEM and have your credit card ready. Operators are standing by, and it won't be sold in stores. (laughs) (laughs) Now what would you pay? (laughs) Order now and avoid bitter disappointment. (laughs) (laughs) You missed the one where the cat would just... Ah, heck with this and lay down and go to sleep. <laughs> I, I know, I should have thought of that. Cats will do their own thing. That's, Absolutely. That's <laughs> typical of a cat, you know, like... Well, Kathy, you must have heard the thing about dogs and cats and the difference. Dogs, they feed me, they love me, they take care of me, they must be gods. Cats, they feed me, they love me, they take care of me, I, I must be a god. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. I'll remember that. That is good. So our next story is from Bill Wiley. Hi, I'm Bill, and uh, this this is a poem I wrote about my uh, my radio show, uh, a, a stream that I do online. This is this is called Bill's Oldies. Memories Bill's Oldie bring. They make you want to sing. They really knock you out. They make you scream and shout. The songs are heavenly. Music of the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Blues, ballads, and rockers are heard. You'll be singing every word. Unknowns and hits keep playing. Sometimes you'll wonder what they are saying. But Bill speaks clearly when announcing the songs. Memories will never be gone. Fun times will be had by all. You'll simply have a ball. Nice. Very good. I... I still think you should read that on the air. There you go. <laughs> I guess did. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, on my air. Yeah. There yeah. you go. <laughs> the, first, the, first, the first half, I, I made an idea out of it, yeah. Oh, oh cool. Okay. That's cool. Good opening. Yeah. Absolutely. And now it's my turn. There you go. This is an O2 spring, because obviously we're all getting sick of winter. Mm-hmm. So this is an O2 spring. The thick white snow covering the ground, snowmen were built, sleds pulled up hills and ridden down, footprints covered the yards, and the sun rose high and warm, melting the snow. The little girl stood in the middle of her garden, crying. It's all dead, 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 dead. My flowers are dead, my ladybugs are dead. Our white snow killed them all. It's all dead, 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 she sobbed, with great tears flowing down her cheeks. Think of the snow as a warm blanket, keeping your garden safe and warm, her papa said. See, the robin has returned from her winter home. She will soon be using the brown grasses and leaves to build her new nest, safe and strong for her eggs and babies. Pushing away some of the leaves in the garden, her father showed the little girl, See, the green leaves are starting to grow. Soon your flowers will be growing as well. The ladybugs will return when it is warmer and the flowers are grown. 
The buds on the trees will be of new leaves, and all will be green and full. Do not weep. Spring is here. A season of renewal and rebirth has arrived. Smile and enjoy the warm weather. Enjoy new spring. As am I. As am I. I think everybody about this time of year is ready for spring. Uh, absolutely. You know, Sue, you and I are on the same wavelength. You know, yeah. I wrote a piece called February Doldrums. February, February, whatever. <laughs> February is now in the rearview mirror, and it's out of earshot. We could talk about February behind its back, and I am so over it. I'll just say Feb, a half word for a halfway, half-hearted month. <laughs> it's wedged halfway between the holidays and spring. As the short month, Feb must have drawn the short straw on the calendric seating arrangements. February's so-called <clears throat> holidays are um, spurious at best. Groundhog Day? <laughs> Please. A pseudo-holiday celebrated as a 30-second news bite at the end of the weather segment. At least this year, Punxsutawney Phil gave us a break. Feb was named after the Latin februum, purification. A time for purification. This is the holiday of Candlemas, the last day of the Christmas season when the Virgin Mary was purified. The Old English Salmanath, mud month, is more aptly descriptive, I think. The first Saturday in February, eat ice cream for breakfast day. Joe, that's yours all over. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Just slather on some Count Chocula, and my friend, you've got the breakfast of champions. <laughs> the Super Bowl. Ah, admittedly, this year, Feb was kind to us. A warm celebration, I'll give it that. The nachos, hot wings, pizza, pigs in blanket, whatever. I'd vote for it to be a holiday. The Hallmark Halfway holiday for St. Valentine's. Folks express half-hearted obligatory affections. There's nothing busier than the drugstore the night before Valentine's Day in the card section. <laughs> However, February 14th is also National Organ Donor Day. Hmm. If you are serious about giving your heart to someone. <laughs> Lovely. Then there's President's Day. Anybody want to buy a car? <laughs> Feb can have days that are not for the faint of heart. It carries the dread of meteorological risk. Even though Feb 5 is National Weatherman's Day, the weather gods are bowling and we are the pins. Mm. Storms roll across the map toward us. Is this the big one? However, we have just traded Feb for March, a more optimistic month that offers a smattering of spring's promise. Looking back, February overstays a welcome that was never offered. Perhaps it finally takes the hint and just leaves a couple of days early. I thought about waxing poetic about February, but in rhyme, the first words that came to mind, January and wary. Try as we might to dress it up, it's still February. That says it all. Yeah. <laughs> yep. And we did have the big one in 78 in February. Exactly. That's right. I love that phrase about bullying. And we are the pins. We are indeed the pins. <laughs> oh, it is that. New England. You never know. To continue the bowling analogy, we've been spared. Yes. <laughs> Need a rim shot here, but a boom. So yeah. far. Yeah. Yes. So, so far. It's not over yet. No, I know. It's not over yet. Not over yet. Yeah, this has been a good winter considering. Well, Sue, once again, we get to declare victory. Yay us. Yay us. Yay. Yay. 
was a good session. Indeed. So I'll sign it off. Okay. If you would like to join the Senior Center Writers Group, just call the Senior Center at 520-4945. For all of our writers, I'm Sue Wade, Bill Wiley, Kathy Salzberg, Alice Judge, Joe Ewald, Faith Flaherty. Thanks for being with us here on the Senior Center Story Hour and sharing in today's stories. I'm Peter J. Remember, be they laced with gravity, levity, wisdom, or whimsy, the meaningful experiences of life become a little larger when you share them, when you take a moment to commit pen to paper and just write. This is FPR.